You know, the saying is when you come to kill the king, you best not miss. Well, he came to kill the king and he didn't even take the shot. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, June 27th. Today, I'm joined by none other than Julia Yaffe to talk about the mutiny that wasn't in Russia, led by Yevgeny Prigozhin of the Wagner Group. Vladimir Putin called him a traitor, Prigozhin blinked, and now he's supposedly heading off to a life of exile in Belarus. Julia has been covering Prigozhin's rise for a while now, and she explains why he thought he could challenge Putin, whether the aborted coup helped or hurt the Russian president, and whether Prigozhin will actually live to see his next birthday. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. The biggest story in the entire world after the Titanic submersible, of course, is the near coup, the armed rebellion uh, that happened for a minute over the weekend in Russia, starring Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, who we thought might stage a coup against Vladimir Putin, then backed away. Then there's a deal brokered by Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus, Putin ally. And suddenly, Prigozhin is, you know, going to live in exile in Belarus. I'm joined today uh, by Julia Yaffe. Who else would we want to talk about this story? Julia, welcome to the show. So many friends and family have been asking for your (laughs) explanation and insight and reporting on the story. So I'm going to get right to it, but I want to lead with one question. How soon before Prigozhin is killed or poisoned? (laughs) It's funny because earlier today I was on the phone with a source and I was asking them the same question. And I said, you know, does he live to see his next birthday? And then we were like, wait, when's his birthday? And it turns out his birthday is June 1st. So Hmm. that basically gives him 11 months, right? Yeah, that's a good over under. Will he last 11 months? I mean, you wrote about Prigozhin and we did a a podcast on the powers that be about it back in December. And and I won't go back and read it. You wrote that his star in power had really been rising, uh, especially since the invasion of Ukraine. And you wrote that he was an increasingly vocal threat to Putin himself. He had obviously been a vocal critic of Ukraine's military leaders. Did he just start to get a big head during the war here? And was his criticism of the of the military leadership kind of a cover excuse to suddenly charge Moscow and, and maybe make a run at Putin himself? I think it was a few things. One is he got a big head in part because he delivered one of the only military victories, such as it was in the capture of Bakhmut, that the Russian government has had in the last few months, right? And if you are Evgeny Prigozhin and you're looking at the situation and the regular army is just a bunch of untrained, ill-equipped conscripts, run by a pretty universally detested defense minister mm-hmm. who is universally in Russia considered to be incompetent and stupid and corrupt, and not just inside Russia, but outside Russia, right? And you're the only one delivering anything to the master, and your guys are dying in disproportionate numbers. Now, 
he probably wouldn't acknowledge that some of it is his tactics, that he doesn't have to send waves of cannon fodder into the fight. He could preserve some of his men. But he felt, A, that he was not given credit for what he was doing for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. B, that, and he felt accurately that the government was trying to put the squeeze on him and to dismantle Wagner completely, in part because it had gotten to be such a threat, which is, again, also extraordinary. Like Alexei Navalny, who I think never really like threatened violence against the Kremlin, is in jail and is serving his second sentence. So he has about 10 years left and he's now facing another 30 years. All he ever wanted to do was beat Putin at the ballot box, right? And you get people being like, well, he said like a few nationalist racist things 15 years ago. Yes, that's bad. But now the only alternative to Putin, as we saw this weekend, was Evgeny Prigozhin, who takes sledgehammers to people's heads, who is a ultra-nationalist fascist. And he could feel that he was the only alternative to Putin or the only real threat to Putin, which is why Putin realizing his mistake and having created this dragon that got out of control who tried to rein him in. I mean, that that's where this all comes from. But yeah, he got too big for his britches, but I think kind of rightly so, because he's been doing a lot. His men have been doing a lot. And why shouldn't he get credit? And why shouldn't he get more weapons and artillery if his fighters are the only ones delivering results? So who do you think Pergozin's constituency was? Was it just the... 20,000 or so Wagner Group mercenaries? Were there people inside the Kremlin who liked him as well? Like, why, for a minute at least, did he think he could pull this off? Because theoretically, he would probably need some political help beyond just these soldiers of fortune who had his back, if they even had his back. Well, he clearly has had wider political ambitions for a while, uh, which is why we did that profile of him back at the end of last year. Mm -hmm. He... As Mikhail Zygut, who we've interviewed before at, at Puck, has pointed out, he tried to outpopulist Putin. He spoke to the Russian people very effectively in a very kind of salt-of-the-earth, simple, often expletive-laden way, in a way that is very Trumpy, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, your leaders are lying to you, the leaders of the military are lying to you, and they're lying to Putin, and I'm the only one who, would, who will tell you the truth. Does that sound familiar, right? And our country is in danger of falling apart and there are all these enemies and I'm the only one who can save you and blah, blah, blah. You saw that in Rostov, in the southern city that they captured without really a fight at all. And people taking selfies with Prigozhin, taking selfies with his fighters, cheering them, chanting Wagner, people giving food and water to the fighters. There was clearly a constituency among the Russian people, and that was one also in part created by Kremlin propaganda, because it has been feeding them this nationalist kind of fascist trash for a decade. And even if you do your best to shut your ears to it, it's going to get in because it's everywhere and it's for 10 years. It's a long time. Like look what Fox did in a very short amount of time to a huge number of people. So he had a real constituency, I think, among the Russian people, but they don't decide anything in Russia. The people who decide anything in Russia are the elites, and the elites were very clearly hanging back and waiting to see who would win. 
Nobody wants to stick their neck out. They've survived this long in Putin's regime. They know you back the winner. So hang back, don't say anything, uh, see who wins, and then go with them. And the person who won this is very clearly Putin. I do want to ask you why you think, I know we don't know, why Prigozhin backed down. But before getting there, just a related question. All of the news coverage around this mutiny, Putin called it treason, has said this is the biggest challenge to Putin's rule in two decades. That's obviously true from a military perspective, but does that mean that Putin is now vulnerable to some other kind of challenge, politically or militarily? I think that's the question. In the long term, yes. In the short term, it's kind of hard to see who it would be. Because for the last six to nine months, Prigozhin was the only possible alternative or the only possible threat. He had his own army, which again, first rule of dictator club is you don't let anyone else have an army. And he let several people have armies. Kadyrov, he understood, would not be palatable to Russians because he's Chechen. But Prigozhin was, became a real threat. And what is the lesson? If you're in the Russian elite or anywhere proximate to them and you saw what happened over the weekend, what did you see? You saw that the only credible threat to Putin's regime, a guy who had his own army with tens of thousands of hardened, battle-hardened, fearless, heavily armed men who, and fearless because they've seen horrible things, so they're clearly not afraid to die. Mm -hmm. He tried, he went toward Moscow, and when he got within striking distance of Moscow, again, he's walked it back now and said, oh, I don't, I wasn't really trying to do that. But he got within striking distance of Moscow and he realized it would be a bloodbath and he wouldn't win. And so, you know, the saying is when you come to kill the king, you best not miss. Well, he came to kill the king and he didn't even take the shot. He completely yeah. choked, right? And if a guy like that is scared to take out Putin or to force any kind of concession from him and backs down even before the fighting starts because he's so scared, what message does that send to the elite? Mm -hmm. It is sit tight and don't do anything because if this guy couldn't do it, you sure shit can't. And so I think in the short term, Putin very much won and strengthened his hand. However inept the response was initially, they're going to do the cleanup, they're going to do the spin, etc. And the message will be, there is nobody who can take out Putin. Everybody is scared of Putin. And in the end, Putin figured out a way out of the situation without spilling much blood and found a way to win. And Prigozhin completely lost. He lost Wagner. Wagner is now being folded into the defense ministry, which is what started this whole thing to begin with. And he is going to Belarus. And I shit you not, there was a Belarusian report earlier today that Prigozhin was spotted in a hotel in Minsk, a three-star hotel, the only high-rise in Minsk where the windows don't open. Okay, I want to ask you, Julia, what might go down in one of those hotel rooms after we take a quick break? Welcome 
back to the powers that be, everyone. I hope you appreciated Julia quoting Omar from The Wire a few moments ago when she said, if you come at the king, you best not miss. He blinked. He missed. Yevgeny Prigozhin, and now he is in Belarus. Alexander Lukashenko, Putin ally. Belarus has been a country that Russia has moved weaponry and troops through toward Ukraine this whole time. I get that he wanted to do Putin a favor and be a middle ground negotiator to get Prigozhin to cease and desist here, but he's not Switzerland. I don't feel like Prigozhin is safe in Belarus. I mean, like, does he even have an inner circle, like allies, bodyguards? Like, if I'm him, I'm trying to get the F out of there, but it just doesn't feel like there is a way out of Belarus, which metaphorically is a hotel room with no windows when it comes to Prigozhin <laughs> right now. But yeah, except the hotel with no windows. There have been so many jokes about this all day, right? A hotel with no windows, like sure, you can't be uh, thrown out the window, but the hotel will always have a roof, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just like Captain Queen in The Departed, meeting his end via the roof. Another friend I talked to today was like, if I were Prigozhin, I would sleep chained to the bed. <laughs> they just can't fucking get me. As for Belarus, Lukashenko has been Putin's junior partner for a long time, especially after he willingly subordinated himself in the summer of 2020 when all those pro-democracy protests broke out in Belarus. And he called on Putin to help him suppress that, effectively becoming his vassal. And Belarus became the like the 51st state of Russia. So this was him asserting himself a little bit and saying, you know, I'm a big boy too, and I can do stuff too. But in some ways, Putin didn't really have a lot of good options. He could have just taken out the whole column of Wagner fighters, you know, from the air. Mm -hmm. That imagery would have been horrific. I don't know how it would have played in Russia because these were people that had been hailed before by Russian media as national heroes, fighters for the Russian cause, that they were on our team and now you're going to be strafing them from the air. That's it. Bad look. Also, Putin, who did he have? He called Takayev of Kazakhstan, the president mm -hmm. of Kazakhstan, who called on Putin a couple of years ago asking him to help him put down some domestic protests. And now Putin called him clearly to ask for the favor to be returned, right? Because they're in a security alliance together. And Takayev said, this is an internal matter to the Russian Federation, which is, uh, you know, like, hey, I'm busy, man, right? The foreign minister of Iran said, you're doing great, but this too shall pass. You know, he called around a lot of allies and they all were like, yeah, we got nothing for you. This is, we don't want to touch this. Mm -hmm. So when Lukashenko stepped up and there were no other effective middlemen to help both these men out of the situation, it was a good option. Also, Putin, and it seems like late evening on Monday when we're taping this, at least Moscow time, he started to find his way out of this and kind of come to his senses and be a little bit more assertive publicly. Mm -hmm. But Putin has this thing where he doesn't want to come down to the people. He's not a glad hander. He doesn't do presidential debates. He's a tsar. He is high, high, high above it all. Mm -hmm. And he took this approach here. There was a column of heavily armed troops 
approaching Moscow and he got in his plane and left Moscow. There were accounts that Prigozhin was trying to get in touch with him, trying to talk to him directly, trying to negotiate. Putin would have none of it. He clearly didn't want to get his hands dirty. He didn't want to stoop to or come down to Prigozhin's level. And so Lukashenko very ably filled that role by volunteering. So you've mentioned that the Wagner Group is getting folded in to the Russian army. Does that mean that their operations all over the world, I mean, they've been in Syria, Libya, uh, Central African Republic, (laughs) Sudan, Mozambique. I mean, does all of that go away? Apparently not, because earlier on Monday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that the missions in Mali and the Central African Republic would remain unchanged. There were also the Wagner recruiting points all over Russia were still open and still recruiting people. So it seems like they're kind of still working this out on the fly. And maybe those units in Africa and the Middle East get folded into the defense ministry or they're rebranded or something. But it seems like they're kind of, they're winging this. But they clearly have no intention. The Kremlin has no intention of ceding ground in Africa or the Middle East, despite the coup. The last thing I want to ask you is this is very obviously a morale booster for Ukraine. What's your take on how this impacts the battlefield? Well, while this was happening, Ukraine made significant gains. But from the Ukrainian side, they're facing real physical obstacles, like vast minefields, a massive Russian army that's, even if it's ineffective, is still very much dug in and heavily fortified. Where this could affect the battle is that it shows other Russian soldiers that You know, these were the guys who were the best paid. They were seen as the best fighters or the most effective fighters in in the Russian military. If this is how they're treated, then what hope do we have? And the question is, how does it affect their morale, their fighting spirit, which is already very low? Mm -hmm. And then if that drops further, does that affect how the Russian war effort goes? We don't know any of that yet. It's too soon to tell, but also... Again, what Ukraine is trying to do in assaulting these positions is incredibly difficult and defending these positions is much easier. So I don't know that it changes the near term on the battlefield, unfortunately, for Ukraine. But again, we don't know how the average Russian soldier will react to this and what this looks like in the medium and long term. All right, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be looking forward to your reporting over the next few days. Please figure out what's going on in that hotel. (laughs) 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 Terrifying indeed. Thanks so much for joining us and thanks for your reporting. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.